Good evening, everyone. Welcome to LSE for tonight's British Government at LSE Public Lecture. For those of you who don't know, my name is Paul Kelly, and I'm one of the pro-directors of the school. Um, very honoured to be here chairing this event. Um, it was to be chaired by Kate Jenkins, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight, so I'm standing in for her at short notice. Um, as well as being a pro-director, I, I am a professor in the government department. Today we have um, a, a lecture as part of a book launch for Rosa Prince's book, Comrade Corbyn, A Very Unlikely Coup. Rosa was born and raised in London. She's an assistant political editor for The Telegraph and was a member of the award-winning team which exposed the 2009 MP's expenses scandal, for which we are eternally grateful. Unless there are any MPs in the audience who are less than eternally grateful. A member of the parliamentary lobby for more than 10 years for the Daily Mirror and the Daily Telegraph, Rosa was also US correspondent for the Telegraph. She is also a freelance journalist and writer and was also author of a book, Standing Down, Interviews with Retiring MPs. Rosa will talk for about 45 minutes and then there'll be plenty of opportunity for you to ask questions. And when we get to the questions, I'm going to moderate that and what I will do is the normal LSE practice of group a few questions and then Rosa will respond to them. At the end of this session, and I'll remind you all of this at the end again, there will be a book signing for those of you who wish to purchase Rosa's book, um, and therefore I will ask you all to remain seated till we have left the room. The book signing is just outside, um, so that we can actually get out. Um, so with that, can I ask you to welcome tonight's speaker, Rosa Prince. Thank you so much, and um, thank you very much to the LSE for, for having me here. I, I really appreciate it, and um, I hope you find it interesting. Um, one of the most interesting and, I think, important things about Jeremy Corbyn's election is um, how he's really inspired people to talk about politics. Um, I've been a political journalist for a long time, and for a, a lot of that time, people said that um, people weren't interested in politics anymore, so to have everyone this summer in particular talking about politics, being interested in Labour Party politics and coming out to a, a lecture like this on a, on a sort of cold February evening is, is really wonderful. So um, it's inspiring as well. So thank you all for coming. I really appreciate you coming to, um, to listen. Um, so I'm looking forward to your questions. Um, but to begin with, I'm going to take you back a bit um, to Wednesday, July 22nd of last summer. Um, it was a sunny day. Uh, those of you who were following the Labour leadership election might remember the day because it was uh, the one where Tony Blair made his slightly unfortunate comment that um, people who were interested in voting for Jeremy Corbyn should uh, have a heart transplant, if that rings a bell. And I was on my way here to the LSE. Uh, a couple of weeks earlier, I had um, signed a, a deal with my publisher to write a book about the Labour leadership election. And I'd been making notes for a couple of weeks now about um, Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham, because that's who we all thought was going to win the Labour leadership contest. So I came here to talk to um, a professor, professor of uh, sociology who had worked on a trade magazine with Andy Burnham. And this was going to be my, this was my first interview as part of my research for my book on um, Andy Burnham. And... Uh, 
here's the book we ended up with, of course. So, um, as you can see, it was a, as big a surprise to, to me as to anyone that we're not talking about Comrade Burnham, but we're talking about Comrade Corbyn. Um, as I got back from that very interesting interview that you'll never read about, unfortunately, um, I had a look at the bundle of papers that I'd taken on the tube with me to read, and uh, this one caught my eye. Labour war as Corbyn closes in on leadership. As I say, it was July 22nd, and it was a poll that had been done by, by YouGov. Uh, it said, the sub-deck, if you can't see it, says, first public poll puts left-winger 17 points ahead. Now, this was a huge shock, and, and also... I think we'd all had that experience of the general election when we were told we are going to get a hung parliament and suddenly we've got a conservative majority. So it was both shocking but also slightly suspicious. And I, I think people like me, to begin with, didn't quite believe it. Certainly everyone I've spoken to in, in Westminster who, who remembers that poll says now, or well, they didn't think it would mean necessarily that Corbyn was going to win the, the contest. They thought it was sort of another rogue poll or the membership would come round, things would change. Um, but as I got off the tube that day, I, I just got a little bit worried, so I sent my uh, publisher an email, and I'll show you the exchange. So I said, morning, James. Looks like I'm going to have to start factoring Jeremy Corbyn into my research too. Best Rosa. James wrote, ha-ha, yes, indeed. Is that okay? And I said, yes, definitely. Comrade Cor- Jeremy has a nice ring for a title, or Comrade Corbyn. Can't quite believe he'll do it, but I guess you never know. And uh, that was the genesis of uh, this book. That's when I first began doing a bit of research on, uh, on Comrade Corbyn. Um, over the next few weeks, I made fewer and fewer notes about Andy Burnham and, and more and more notes about, um, about sorry, more, more and more notes about uh, Jeremy Corbyn, fewer and fewer about Levette Cooper or, or and poor old Andy Burnham. And um, within a couple of weeks, it it's pretty much became apparent that he was going to win and, and win very tidily. Oh, excuse me. Um, Sorry. So, yeah, so I, I set myself to thinking, what did I want this book to be? Now, I'd been in the lobby at that point for over 10 years, but I didn't know Jeremy Corbyn, and I think that was true of pretty much everyone, all of my colleagues in the press gallery. We didn't know him. He didn't associate with what he calls the, the right-wing press. We would call the mainstream press. Um, he had a column in the, in the Morning Star, but he certainly didn't interact with the the journalists on national newspapers, the national broadcasters. I knew who he was, obviously. Um, I knew that he had been involved in the Stop the War campaign. He had a lot of um, causes, which were sort of the right-on causes of the left, I suppose you could characterise it. But I didn't know him personally. I certainly didn't know anything about his private life. So as the days went by and I began looking into him, um, I decided to set myself two questions for the book. One was, who is he, to find out who this person, Jeremy Corbyn, is, and two, to find out what on earth is going on, and then when he subsequently won, what happened? How, how did this unknown left-winger suddenly snatch the leadership of the Labour Party against all probability and against everyone's in the mainstream media, most commentators, against all their expectations? And uh, so th- those are the two questions that went on to form... Um, the title of the book. So the book is Comrade Corbyn, so that's an introduction to him. First part of the book is a sort of biography. And then the second part of the book is the story of the summer, the story of the leadership election. Any biography obviously has some pivotal moments, and it's about identifying those moments when 
a person becomes the person that's important and famous enough that you want to, to write a biography about. So that was my aim, to sort of identify when he became who, who he is and then what happened to make him into what he is, if you see what I mean. Um, so I've done my best to do that in the book and I'm, I'm going to do a little of that tonight, I hope. So first of all, I'm going to give you just a little potted introduction to his early life to, to talk about his childhood, a little bit about his upbringing and his early years and why I think that makes him the man he is today. Second, I'm going to talk a bit about why I think Corbyn won, some of the many reasons that Corbyn won, and I'm going to focus in on one I find most interesting, which is the role of social media in his election, because I don't think much has been written about that or talked about that, and actually I found it was quite pivotal, and I think it's really interesting. So I thought I'd... Not because it's the most in, important factor in his victory, but just I thought it was an interesting one that hasn't really been explored much. So that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. So to begin with is, is the biography side. Um, I had a bit of help when I was uh, beginning to knock together my biography. Here are some of the stories that appeared in the first few weeks after he was elected. So after, sorry, he, was, uh, he became the favourite. So we've got... Jeremy Corbyn, the boy to the manor born. Welcome to the seven-bedroom house where the Labour leadership candidate set out on his radical path. Making of Comrade Corbyn, Quentin Letts explains how Labour leader went from prep school boy raised in a manor house to rich, bashing friend of terrorists. Posh past of the sex pot trot, how Corbyn was brought up in a seven-bedroom home, went to prep school and even played polo. So you can see some of my colleagues did some work for me. (laughs) Um, And... Actually, when I began to research the book, I've, I was very pleased that um, Andy Burnham and Yvette Cooper were doing so badly, because Jeremy Corbyn turns out to have an absolutely fascinating early life and backstory. Um, I learned an awful lot about an awful lot of things researching his life, because he's, he's 66, he's done a lot. He's an impressive figure, and he's had, he has a colourful background, a colourful past, interesting family, interesting friends, and I have to say, as a biographer, it was a, it was a really a joy to, to write, and to, I, I loved writing it, so I hope you all love reading about it. But back in the summer, when I first set out, um, yeah, he was a bit one-dimensional, so he was the, the sex pot trot, he was the, uh, the, the guy from the middle-class background who became a, a lefty, um, for reasons that didn't really seem explained, so I hope to, to have a bit more of a nuanced look at it, so um, I began my researches. I started at his, the seven-bedroom, what do they call it, the manor house. Here it is. Um, so it, it, it is indeed very nice, as you can see. Um, it is seven-bedroom. I went to see it. There are horses in the paddocks. Um, I was shown around by the current occupier. Um, I think we can agree that it's a very nice house indeed. What I found really interesting was that as I um, looked at things that had been said about the house by Jeremy, by his brothers, when I spoke to some of his family members, um, they all down, wanted to downplay the fact that he grew up in this wonderful, picturesque manor house. Um, his mother, Naomi, actually changed the name of the house. It was Yew Tree Manor, and she changed the name to Yew Tree House because she thought it sounded a bit more proletarian, I think. And all of the brothers, Jeremy's one of four brothers, they all tried to tell me, or they wrote, or they gave interviews saying, it wasn't that big a house, it's in Shropshire, so it doesn't cost that much money. Um, It was a complete wreck, we had to do lots of work on it. And in a way, what I found most interesting, and and I hope you do too, is not the fact that 
it is or isn't a big house, but it was the fact that they all spoke about it in those terms because what emerged from my research was that Jeremy Corbyn comes from a very left-wing family. He's not a rebel. He's not one of those sort of, you know, the, the public schoolboy who, who kicks against his privileged upbringing by turning to communism. He comes from a, a, a line of, of left-wingers. He, he's a, actually, in many ways, a, a conformist. This is where he learnt about politics in a, in a fabulous setting, but it was very much something that was always part of his life. His parents, Naomi and David, met um, when they went to a committee meeting um, dedicated to helping the brave forces who were fighting Franco during the Spanish Civil War. His father, David, was a mechanical engineer. His own father had been a solicitor, so it's quite a comfortable background. But when he became an engineering apprentice, he joined the trade union, and I believe that's where, where he found his interest in politics. Um, Naomi was an extraordinary woman for her time. She went to university, which is very unusual. Um, she went on to become a science teacher. She taught at a grammar school. And during the war, the couple, grew up, the couple both grew up in London and met there. During the war, David worked uh, for an electrical engineering company, and his work was, a res- it was called a reserved occupation. So he didn't have to fight because it was so important. His work was so important to the war effort. And... After a little while, um, his work moved to Wiltshire, which is where the first of the Corbyn brothers were born. And a little while after that, they ended up moving to, to Shropshire, which is where Jeremy... Jeremy's the youngest boy. He moved there when he was six. So, as I say, they grew up in this surroundings where they were members of the Labour Party, they talked about politics at dinner, the boys were all encouraged to take an interest... Um, Jeremy was a joiner like his parents, so he was in the League Against Cruel Sports. This is at a time, obviously, when um, in Shrewsbury it was quite a sort of hunting-fishing set, so he would go to school and some boys would talk about how they had a great time hunting that weekend and he would say he'd been on a demonstration against it. Um, As they grew up, they protested about Vietnam. Uh, He was in... um, Amnesty at a young age. He was a member of CND at a young age. His mother used to, later on, his mother would um, cycle 50 miles to, sorry, take her moped 50 miles to Greenham Common to um, bring parcels to the peace women there. So there's a family who are very engaged, very um, political, and he sort of carried on like that his whole life. He, he started as he would, he began as he would go on. Um, the one area that he did disagree with his parents um, was education. So the Corbyn parents believed in education and they believed that their boys should have the best. So they sent their children first to private prep schools and then when they sat the 11 plus they went on to grammar school. Now I'm sure probably most of you have heard the uh, story of how Jeremy Corbyn went on to divorce his second wife because she wanted to send their children to grammar school and he was vehemently opposed to this. Which is a fascinating story and, and it has its roots in this time. So he goes to grammar school and, and he hates it. Um, he went to the Adams School in Newport, which one of the people said it, it was a, a grammar school with pretensions to be a public school. So there were uniforms, they played rugby, even though the England football team was uh, training just across the street from his house at Lily Shaw Manor. The 66 got World Cup uh, winning team. They were interested in rugby. Um, they had a cadet force. They had houses. His house was named for Clive of India. And he, and he just couldn't, 
couldn't bear it. It was sort of against, it was against everything he'd been growing more politically interested in. And so he rebelled. And his rebellion, although his brothers did very well academically, um, he, he just sat this one out. So he left the Adams School with two E's at A-level, which obviously he's a very bright man. That wasn't the summit of his intellectual capacity. It was, it was very much a, a protest against the school. But it left him without an option when it came to considering whether he would go into further education. So at an age where boys of his class and aptitude would be going to university, he couldn't do that. So he went to um, do voluntary service overseas. And he was one of the first people in the country to do that. It, it hadn't been going very long. And he went to Jamaica, which at that time was only just free from colonialism. I think it had been... Uh, independent for five years and what an extraordinary experience for a young man from rural Shropshire so he goes there and he is a teacher in Kingston in a deprived school he probably meets black people for the first time in his life Um, it's a time when Bob Noel Coward is sort of hanging around with prime ministers and kings and queens on one end of the island and Bob Marley's at the other end inspiring young people to think about their African roots and to, to talk about that so an amazing life experience. Um, after two years there, he went to Latin America, and again, while students were sort of sitting and talking about Paris, he's actually there, this is 1968, he's actually there seeing what global inequality is about. And I would argue that that's where he develops his interests that will last him for a lifetime. He's interested in, in inequality, he's interested in, in people, um, he's interested in internationalism. And some of the people I spoke to for my research suggested that it also, in some ways, means that he's, become, he's arrested politically, you could argue, because instead of going to university sort of growing up, like everyone else does, they, they would say does by going to, to student meetings and demos, he's, he's almost on his own. He's quite a lonely figure. Um, he's there, he's seeing these extraordinary things. But he's not sort of arguing it out. So more than once, several people in the book suggested that this is the sort of foundation of, of why he is the man he is, why he's Comrade Corbyn, why when everyone else seems to have changed their ideas as they went along, he just stuck staunchly to them. Um, which I think is an interesting idea and, and, um, and perhaps yeah, explains why he alone just, just kept on going on. Um, now, his life continued to take some really interesting twists and turns, but I sort of thought I should stop there, because otherwise none of you will read the book. So I'm going to move on from, uh, from his early, early years to talk about um, this summer. And there are so many reasons why Jeremy Corbyn won the Labour leadership, and I talk about lots of them in the book. Um, but I think that this is a big one of them. It's the anti-war demonstration of 2003, um, the Iraq War, and I devote much of a chapter to talking about Iraq, um, and not just Iraq, but specifically this march, which Jeremy Corbyn was one of the main organisers of, as as a, a member of a Stop the War, um, of the Stop the War coalition. He was there on the first day when the coalition was founded, and he was a key organiser of the march itself. Um, now, I was on this march. I'm sure that lots of you in the audience were were there that day. Um, over a million of us were here in London, and millions more around the world. It, it, it was quite a, an extraordinary event, and yet the war still happened. And I would argue that Jeremy Corbyn's election 
sort of traces a, a direct line from that because if you have a million people on the streets of London and you ignore what they say, then they're, they're not going to be, you know, they're going to feel things and, and think things. And I think that many people who left Labour at that time did have a simmering resentment, which then only sees its realisation once you get to this summer and Jeremy Corbyn saying, I can give you an opportunity here, a forum, to get your own back on, on Tony Blair and the Blairites. And, and so I think that is one of the key moments for, um, for Corbyn. It also, on a sort of more practical level, um, provided him with much of the infrastructure for his leadership bid. When you talk to some of the other leadership teams, they admit now that they were nowhere near as organised and as coherent as Jeremy Corbyn's team. They really knew what they were doing. Uh, their rallies, their, their, their speeches they put on for him, their social media, their fundraising, they were streets ahead of the so-called sort of professional new labour lot. And a lot of that is because he had a team around him who he met during the Stop the War days. Um, many of them who he still work for him were from Stop the War, um, and they were good at their jobs. Um, they're sort of proving less affected, I would argue, now that he's um, in office. But at the time, that leadership uh, team last summer, he owes a lot to Stop the War, and they owe a lot to, of their, the tight-knit nature of the group because they cut their teeth in Stop the War. And it's not just Stop the War that he was involved in, obviously. Jeremy Corbyn's been involved in pretty much every major campaign on the left for 20, 30, even 40 years. And that has consequences because he's been at every demonstration, he's been at every meeting, he's met an awful lot of people. And it's surprising how many people you can meet during 40 years of of opposition, opposition first to the Thatcher governments and kind of to his own government during the, the Blair years. And when the time came, when he was there saying, look, I'm asking for you to support me, they were there for him. And and they organised for him, and they voted for him, and they got their friends to vote for him, and they got their kids to vote for him. So his many years of activism actually put him in a place where he was in a position um, to go on to, to, to win in a way that someone like Andy Burnham, who'd sort of been in government, slogging out there rather than on the front line with Corbyn, couldn't do. Um, so Iraq, I think, was a big factor. Um, what else? I would say um, expenses. I might be biased as a member, as a, you said, of the expenses team. But certainly the expenses scandal of 2009 engendered a feeling among people that enough was enough with these politicians. Um, there was an anti-politics mood, an anti-politicians as usual mood, and someone like Jeremy Corbyn, who can say, despite having been involved in politics with a small P for all, all those years, he can sort of say that he's aloof from that. He wasn't in government. Um, he clearly isn't um, personally ambitious or grasping or someone who's out for money. Um, so again, I think that he was able to attract to himself an aura of the anti-politician that despite his long history of politics, people were attracted to. What else? Um, the banking collapse. I would argue that, that there's a, a lot in that, um, particularly the anti-austerity measures that followed. I think that the Labour Party felt that they, there needed to be someone talking about anti-austerity and, and opposed to George Osborne's plans, and um, Corbyn was the only one doing that. And that's something that's a global phenomenon, as you know. Um, we see that in, in Spain, we've seen that in Greece, um, in America, we see that with Bernie Sanders and also 
on the flip side with Donald Trump, who, although he is a right-winger, actually appeals to sort of blue-collar um, workers who, who feel that they might not call it anti-austerity, but they certainly feel they've sort of had a raw deal. Um, so that's very much um, one of the things that I think contributed to these underlying forces at work preparing the ground for Jeremy Corbyn. Um, all these people who are sort of fed up with politics. There was um, a poll out after his election, actually, which showed that people who voted during the Labour leadership contest for Jeremy Corbyn were twice as likely to have voted Lib Dem in 2010 as those who both who voted for Corbyn and Burnham, but also voted in the population at large. Those are people who perhaps voted Lib Dem because of the tuition fees pledge, and when somebody breaks a promise, when a politician breaks a promise, people get annoyed. So people who were annoyed with the Lib Dems ended up voting for Jeremy Corbyn. Um, If people feel betrayed by a politician, then they want to react, and it wasn't just about voting for Corbyn, it was about kicking the politicians. It was a a, a hit back for people. Um, So those are sort of the underlying forces that I would argue were at work um, in Corbyn's election. And then there's also the sort of great man theory of why it happened. So there are lots of accidents and incidents along the way with Corbyn, and I'll tell you about a few of those. Again, these are all sort of, whoops, set out in the, um, in the book, so please do read it. Um, Andy Burnham, this, the story of um, this summer, I would argue, is as much about Andy Burnham's failure to catch the Labour, Labour leadership as it was Jeremy Corbyn. Andy Burnham was the clear favourite at the start of the contest, and he... <sighs> There were so many mistakes that he made along the way. Um, it almost sort of became a, a calamitous campaign. He started the uh, contest saying that um, he was going to be the candidate of the left. And most of the left-wingers I spoke to at the outset thought that they would be voting for Andy Burnham, and they weren't unhappy about that. I think he was appealing. He'd done some work in the preceding years of um, making himself attracted to the trade union movement and sort of talking the language that suddenly he was making noises, that he would be more left-wing than Ed Miliband, even. And then when the election happened and the Conservatives unexpectedly came to power, he sort of panics and thinks, well, people didn't like Ed Miliband because he's too left-wing, therefore I can't be too left-wing. So he began to, to tack to the right quite early on in the contest. And people were annoyed by that. All those left-wingers who thought they were going to be voting for Burnham found that they didn't have a candidate. They didn't have someone articulating their, their views. And so I would argue that was one of the, the big early mistakes he made. He himself um, believes that it was the Welfare Reform Bill, which I'll remind you last summer um, George Osborne proposed cutting the Welfare Bill Um, He put that to the Commons, and that created all sorts of problems for the Labour Party. Harriet Harman felt, as the acting leader, felt that um, having opposed, having given the impression that Labour was was on the side of the work shy, that the party couldn't afford to continue that impression, and so she asked the Shadow Cabinet to go along with the cuts. Jeremy Corbyn was the only candidate not to, and Burnham, poor old Burnham, sort of spent weeks agonising Hamlet style, I think I say it in the book, about what to do. And he didn't want to rebel because he wanted to be, he thought he would win the leadership, and therefore he wanted to be a, a leader that inspired authority. Um, but yet he, he sort of knew that it would play badly for him among Labour grassroots members. So he identified that as the moment. Um, 
he also thinks that Yvette Cooper has a role to play because he thinks that by the end of the contest, when it became clear that Corbyn was a favourite, she should have stood aside in favour of him. Um, there are all sorts of other things. Um, people blame the MPs, the parliamentary party, for nominating Jeremy Corbyn when they didn't want to actually have him as their leader. And there's a great story, which I hope you read, about how at the very last minute they managed to get the last two MPs to support him. Um, some say it was the fault of Ed Miliband for changing the rules for the party leadership so that you had these three-pound members, which, although when you look at the figures of who voted for Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, he won by far across all sections of the party. But the three-pound members, although they weren't decisive numerically, I, I think in the end it was just the fact that those people were there, that it was such a global um, election and audience that allowed him to to get there because it created a sort of zeitgeist of, of a summer where everyone was involved and everyone was part of it in a way that it wouldn't have been if it was just full members. Um, some say the Blairites I spoke to said that it was Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband's fault because they let up on the pedal of what Blairism had been, which was this relentless drive to win elections and to say that you need to... to, to you cannot... You, have, you can't compromise on that because the most important thing for a Labour Party is to be a Labour government and that therefore you can't do anything that distracts from that. Uh, the Blairites say that both Ed Miliband and Gordon Brown said to people, you can dream. You can dream that your policies, the policies that you believe in, could be presented to the electorate even though they're not realistic. So that, they, they blame um, those two. Um, some people blame Eric Joyce. I don't know if you remember him. He was the Labour MP who got drunk in the House of Commons and got into a fight with a Tory MP, was expelled by the Labour Party, and then there was a sort of tortuous scandal involving vote-rigging to select the candidate to replace him, which is what led to those rule changes and the three-pound members I'm talking about. So everyone has their, their sort of theory. Um, and now I'm going to talk about one of the ones I find really interesting, which is social media. So, the role of social media in, uh, in Corbyn's campaign, I think, I would argue, is something that could not have happened during any other leadership campaign we've seen, including 2010. So as recently as that, this is a really new phenomenon where you have people who are very involved in Twitter and Facebook, and it gives them a platform and a power that they just haven't had until now. So in my book, I say that if you'd asked any of the uh, MPs who were elect Labour MPs who were elected on election day um, on May 7th, if they thought it would be Jeremy Corbyn who would be their leader in a few months' time, they would have laughed in their, your face, including Corbyn himself, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, he just didn't think he would be the leader. He didn't expect to be the leader. He had no interest in standing to be the leader. So how did it happen that he's now our leader? How did it happen that he, in the first place, puts himself forward to be a leader? What happened was that, as I explained, when Andy Burnham began to sort of shuffle off to the right, well, that way, um, people, grassroots activists, in their living room were unhappy, and they decided that there should be a left-wing candidate. And from the comfort of their own living rooms, they actually made that happen. So left-wing groups sort of went around talking to MPs and trying to get them to stand. They went to John Trickett, they went to Ian Lavery, and nothing really happened. John McDonnell had done it before, um, Diane Abbott had, had done it before, neither of them had done very well. But then up stepped the two sort of unsung heroines of uh, the Corbyn story. So the first 
the lady I'm going to introduce you to is um, she's called Michelle Ryan, and she's a part-time aromatherapist from Worthing. And the second is a lady called um, Rebecca Barnes. She's a ticket inspector. Uh, she's got four kids. They're both in their 40s. They've never met. They've never attended a Labour Party meeting. Uh, they've never knocked on a door. But they're kind of interested in, in the Labour Party and in, in left-wing politics. And they like tweeting about it, and they like blogging about it. Um, they don't talk on the phone. But after Andy Burnham um, gave an interview to The Observer quite a way into the leadership contest so, so two or three weeks in um, Michelle Ryan read this interview and he talked about Ed Miliband's plan for a mansion tax as the politics of envy and Michelle Ryan was really annoyed because she, this is a policy that she believed in, she thought it was important and she felt that if Andy Burnham didn't represent her wing of the party then who would? So she went on a Facebook forum that she used to chat to her friends on and she said, what we need is a left-wing candidate, um, let's demand one. So Be- Rebecca Barnes wrote back saying, yes, I'll help you write it, and this is what they produced. We call upon Labour MPs to nominate Jeremy Corbyn as a leadership candidate to ensure members and affiliated supporters have the opportunity to hear anti-austerity... Uh, oh, is that the right one? Sorry. Ah, there's one missing. Sorry. There was one before this that said, um, we call on the Labour Party to have an anti-austerity candidate. And it sort of talked about all the reasons why um, they should. And it went around and it got a couple of thousand um, signatures. But this is one who definitely saw it, Jeremy Corbyn himself. So you can see from that, it says, please have a look at this petition. It means a lot to me. And that was sent on the 29th of May. Jeremy Corbyn didn't throw his hat into the ring until the 12th of June. So at this stage, he still thinks that, yes, we need a left-wing candidate, but he still has no idea that he's going to be this candidate. <laughs> he actually went to Parliament and he asked fellow MPs to nominate him to sit on the Foreign Affairs Committee, because that's an elected post within the party, because he wasn't asking anyone to help get him onto the ballot or to stand for leader. He thought it would be off in the Foreign Affairs Committee. But this petition, it did the rounds and it did the rounds. And Michelle would tweet it and Rebecca would tweet it. They had Twitter storms and they would, um, on Facebook, they would send messages. And in the end, Jeremy said, all right, then I'll stand. And once he did stand, um, a chap called Stuart Wheeler, this is the one I, sorry, I showed you earlier by mistake, he sent around this petition saying, we, now we urge Labour MPs to, to nominate him. Stuart works in the accounts department of a a meat processing farm in Cornwall. And again, he, he's, I think he's um, a local councillor, but he's not a big figure in the party. But he got, basically got Jeremy Corbyn onto the ballot once Corbyn decided to stand, because this petition also did the rounds. And individual MPs became under enormous pressure to nominate him, even though they didn't believe in his policies, they didn't want him to be leader... But the argument was being consistently made to them that this wing of the party needs to be represented and you will be denying us, it will be undemocratic if you don't. Now, the leadership rules that I talked about earlier, the change that happened to them, stipulated that um, 15% of the party should nominate, of the parliamentary party, should nominate a candidate. And that was designed so that the PLP didn't get a leader that they couldn't work with. So they broadly had support in the PLP. Well, that hasn't worked out too well because only about 10 of the MPs who nominated Jeremy Corbyn went on to vote for him. 
Um, more than half in the end didn't vote for him. And it was because of people like this. It was activists um, tweeting and tweeting and emailing and saying, you need to do this. I'll show you an example of that. So um, this is Neil Coyle. It says, um, emailing Ree Corbyn stroke Labour leadership. Please include how you voted 7th May. If not Labour, why? He was. And your plan if he's not on ballot but loses. And people are saying tweeting him underneath saying, please consider supporting him and open debate is needed to avoid claims of a stitch-up. This is the 15th of June, which is not long before, so it's not long at all before the, the ballot closed. And Neil Coyle is not, by far, not a, a Corbyn supporter. Um, when I actually roll forward to later in the summer, he actually got Piers Corbyn, Jeremy's brother, banned from the contest because he had um, supported a, a, a different party during the May election. Um, he is one of those, I think, who have buyer's remorse now, who regret that he did go on to nominate Jeremy. Um, and, and he regrets that there are a, a lot of MPs who now wish that they hadn't succumbed to this kind of pressure. And a lot of sort of new Labour apparatchiks who, they, they, excuse me, they curse and they swear when we talk about how MPs misunderstood the system, they shouldn't have been doing it, these social activists... But it shows that there's this enormous power that you can have from, from the internet. And it's, it's, um, it's democratic in some ways because it gives people a voice who didn't have a voice. But also at the same time, we see the repercussions flowing from that today. So now we have the momentum movement, which is created, born out of many of the forums that these people originally were involved in, in the run-up to the leadership contest. And some mainstream, small M, mainstream uh, MPs complain that they're of bullying, they say that they're trolling, um, they cl- complain of some misogyny, some MPs say that they've had death threats. So it, it, it's quite a powerful army that Jeremy Corbyn has, and he, he's aware of the, the potential negatives of it. So he talked about this in his um, first speech at, at a Labour conference, he called for civility online. Um, but it also gives him an enormous power because he's not beholden to the PLP. He's not even beholden to the party structures. He can reach over them, talk directly to them. So if the party, I think we saw this with Syria, if the party is sort of going in a way he doesn't want, he can say, I'm going to have a poll of party members. And, and that's quite hard for his MPs to then resist. So I would argue that it's quite a big part of his leadership and, and how, he, um, how he did... Come to, come to the leadership in the first place and something that sort of continues to be a big factor um, to this day. Mm, excuse me. Do you want me to... Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, Michelle Ryan, by the way, is now a hugely powerful figure in the sort of Corbynista world and she blogs and, and tweets Blairite MPs saying that they should be on message. Um, I think I described social media for Corbyn as a, a tiger that he rides but hasn't quite learned to tame. Um, anyway, I, I think I'll sort of wind up now because I'm really keen to um, hear your questions. So I'm going to leave you, which is roughly when I finish the book. This is um, Jeremy Corbyn on stage at Labour Conference uh, as, as the winner. Um, so I think I've introduced, told you a little bit about the man that is Comrade Corbyn. Um, I've told you about some of the factors I think contributed to him um, being elected. And we've talked about the social media side. So if you do want to start a Twitter storm, the hashtag is Comrade Corbyn.
Okay, we have, we have plenty of time for questions. Um, I'm going to invite you um, to indicate whether you'd like to ask a question. If you could introduce yourself for the benefit of the speaker, I'll take groups of about three and I'll move across the room. Um, do try and ask questions and not necessarily just give your alternative theories. But um, if you could put your hands up, let me start. Uh, one, two, three on this side. I'm Keith Raff and I'm a former member of Parliament, but on another side, I'm, I'm surprised, and the question is about John McDonnell, because you only mentioned him in passing, and don't you think that actually he's a key figure in all of this? He called the uh, initial meeting of left-wing MPs who nominated Corbyn. He is, if you call it, a, a heavyweight in the sense that even now he's uh, gaining the respect of right-wing commentators like Andrew Neil. Uh, praise for his stance on Google um, and also for uh, his economic seminars, etc., etc. Um, I don't know if you saw his very impressive interview with Andrew Neil last week. And he's the kind of much more intriguing and interesting figure because he's the one who's trying to bridge the gap between the Corbynistas and the Parliamentary Party. Could you say a bit more about your views on him? Okay, we'll take, we'll take the three and then come back to that. No, I'll, I'll keep on this aisle for the moment and I'll come to the middle next. Uh, yeah, I, I think you... Introduce yourself, please. Oh, sorry, Richard Melville. Um, I think you hinted uh, on the uh, sort of following Jeremy Corbyn is getting from, uh, from the youth, um, but I don't think you went into it in detail. I'd be interested in your views on that, because it's obviously not just a Corbyn factor, because Bernie Sanders in the States also... Uh, uh, commands this huge following from the youth. So, um, it, 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 as I say, it's not just a Corbyn factor. It, there's something else going on. I'd be interested in your, your views on that. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mazen. Um, I had a brief look at your book, uh, and uh, it was very impressive. I wanted to know from you uh, what uh, cooperation you've had from Jeremy Corbyn and his associates and whether your interviews with uh, diverse people were on the record, off the record, and uh, what kind of other research have you done on, uh, on the politics of Jeremy Corbyn rather than just on the life of Jeremy Corbyn? Because, uh, you know, it, uh, one must have an assurance from you that it really is an impartial view. Okay, thank you. you to take sure. Um, so, John McDonald, to begin with, it's kind of the... Yeah, um, very key to his um, to his election and uh, important to his life, really. I mean, he's his closest friend. He he said during the um, leadership contest that he was his closest friend in politics and talked about how much he admired him. Um, I didn't talk about him because there's obviously so much in the book that I haven't been able to talk about. So I, I sort of thought I'd focus on those areas. But yeah, I mean, um, I heard a I heard a lot more negative about John McDonnell as a person than I did about Jeremy Corbyn. Everyone I spoke to um, about Jeremy Corbyn said that he's a, a lovely man, I might disagree with him politically, but he's such a nice guy. Um, John McDonnell people were much more scathing about. I think he's obviously um, quite an abrasive figure. But I think you're right, I think he's also a very impressive figure. And I, I do say in the, in the book that he he pretty much masterminded the, the summer. I mean, that, 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 that Stop the War campaign, I include John McDonnell in that because he was very influential. He was the most important um, figure in, in the team that got Corbyn elected, and he continues to be the most important um, member of the team. One MP who I spoke to off the record um, 
suggested that he was the puppet master, that Corbyn was just this sort of figure who um, presents well, and, um, and I think that's a bit unfair. I think Corbyn's a more substantial figure than that. But I think you're right to, to, to suggest that I agree with everything you say. I think he's, he's key to him. Um, young people, yeah, I mean, I think it, it became a bit of a lazy suggestion, didn't it, during the summer that he's sort of, it's all about the young people and it's, they're, they're naive and, and it's, people talk about that with Bernie Sanders as well. I think what's fascinating about Corbyn is that he inspired all sorts of ages, actually. Um, one person I spoke to who went to a lot of his rallies suggested that he found that there were lots of young people and lots of older people, that he kind of didn't appeal to the, the middle, not middle-aged, but, you know, the middle-aged, as it were. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that young people are part of that generation that are very influenced by what's happened in the last decade or so. So um, tuition fees and um, austerity and they can't buy a house anymore and they can't afford the rents and um, they're living at home. And there's certainly a lot of anger and politics of politicians of all parties are failing to appeal to them. And I would include sort of some of the peripheral parties like the Green Party, who once maybe a lot of young people would have been attracted to the Green Party and perhaps feel that they've not really been exciting and radical. Um, so, yes, totally agree with you. I think, um, I think that it is a, a global phenomenon where people are attracted, to, young people are attracted to anti-politicians who seem to speak a refreshing language. Um, cooperation. Um, not very much cooperation. Um, Jeremy Corbyn is, for a politician, a very, very private person. I mean, this is someone who lives in the public eye but hates that aspect of it. So I think that, I think that any biographer would have found that he was unhappy with them. So he personally didn't cooperate. Um, some of his team did speak to me. Um, I think they felt that it was important to be engaged and you'll see in the book there are some really interesting insights from some of them and, and some of them are on the record so you can see um, who they are and some of them chose to do that on a more private basis and that's true throughout the book so um, I would say about 50-50 people wanted to be named and not named and oftentimes what would happen is that people would give an interview and say some of this is on the record and the sort of juicier stuff is off the record um, so yeah other sources um, interviews I found were the best sources because then you can follow up and you can go down paths that you want to but of course you know I read all the everything I can get my hands on so any biography about him any newspaper article that's been written about him um, his policies I mean in a way it's not an it's not a sort of exploration of his policies so I suppose I didn't talk go into it as much as perhaps you'd want me to it was more the story the story of of his life and then going into the story of the leadership contest and actually I mean it's 400 pages already so I think if I'd gone in too much great depth talking about policies which after all aren't aren't his alone you know these are things that probably as a it would be something he would somebody might want to publish a book about that kind of thinking rather than particularly his own I mean he, I don't think he's yet set out a whole treatise on his own political philosophy but perhaps we can all look forward to that Okay, some more questions Gentlemen here if you Keep your hands up and I'll take a few from the middle section The two uh, My name is David Harrington, I'm a member of the public This is a more general question Do you think the election of uh, Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party is a good event for British politics or a breath of fresh air? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I don't... 
I don't know that it's as straightforward as good or bad, is it? I think that there are lots of positives about it and some negatives about it. I mean, I think the positive about it is what I mentioned just when I first thanked you. I think it's wonderfully positive that people were turning out to hear a 66-year-old politician talk in a church hall in Cambridge on a you know, Thursday night. I think it's wonderful that you're all here tonight. Um, I, I, anything that gets people involved in democracy and politics, I can only think is a good thing. Um, Jer- Corbyn's sort of promise to the Labour Party this summer was that you can win an election with a left-wing candidate. And so far, that doesn't seem to be being borne out in that he's doing badly in the polls. Now, you know, we know that the polls aren't accurate, but it does seem to be that um, he's not able to deliver on that yet. Will he be able to deliver that in a few years' time? I don't know. If, if the people who were opposed to Corbyn from his own party on the grounds that they don't think he can win elections are right, I don't think it's, necessary, I don't think it's particularly a good thing if the country doesn't have a viable opposition. So if those people are true, if the sort of doomsayers are right, then I, I worry about that. Sorry, and I didn't take yeah, it. I'll, 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 I'll take a, a few. So okay. the, the woman in the blue jumper, the gentleman in the plaid shirt next to, along the line, and then the gentleman in the, in the maroon top behind. Okay, three of you. Introduce yourself. And then. Thank you. Um, I'm Ashley. Um, I was wondering whether you think the use of terms like Comrade Corbyn and painting him as a Marxist in that way is damaging for his campaign because it goes along with the right-wing press's opinion of him. Okay. Uh, two, two down from you, just the gentleman in the plaid shirt there. Yeah, you. You. I thought you had your hand up. No? Yeah? yeah. Did, you, did you want to ask a question? No, I, I didn't have my hand up, but I'll ask Okay, I thought you did. Sorry. Well, then. <laughs> I won't force you to no, ask no, a question. No, it just occurs, since I have the mic, it just occurs to me that there's something really refreshing about British politics where we have this very honest kind of politics coming through, and uh, yet in the face of all of that, the press is responding by saying uh, a slick exterior seemed to be better than a truly honest position uh, from somebody. And I just feel that um, it would be interesting to hear your view on the role of honesty in politics, and can it actually rise above the, you know, horse manure. Okay, the gentleman next to you, who I think did want to ask a question, but thank you. That was worth it. Um, hi there, my name's James. I, I was wondering, in terms of Labour's electability, and regardless of sort of internal party machinations regarding the leadership over the next 18 months, do you think it's more important for them to develop the further left position they found themselves in or return to the more central ground where they're historically more electable. Okay, those kind of go together, and then the gentleman in the maroon T-shirt, just two up. Then I'll move over to the far side. Uh, Hi, my name's Mark. Um, I've come along just to learn a bit more about Corbyn, not knowing much about him, Um, and thank you for educating me a bit. Uh, My question is, so, well, I'll sort of say a statement, and then maybe you can respond to it. But a, lot, a couple of my friends that I talk about politics to, well, they talk to me about politics a lot, and I listen. Um, they, they say, Corbyn hates Britain. And I just I want to know why they would say something like that. Maybe they're crazy. Um, maybe they're 
Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. Like, educate me as to why people say that or why they would say that. Cheers. Okay. Okay. Um, so the Comrade Corbin question first. Um, yeah, I, I have had a few um, people sort of complaining about that, and I was surprised because I didn't. It didn't occur to me at the time that I. Um, called it that, that it would be controversial at all. Um, I originally actually wanted to call it Comrade Jeremy because I thought that was um, really cute. I thought it was... um, It sort of highlighted the perfect sort of juxtaposition between he's Jeremy, he's this sort of middle-aged, middle-class, quite sweet bloke. Um, The the guy you see on the front of the book is sort of smiley and and nice and a granddad. And then, you know, he's a a person who is by far the most left-wing politician we've had leading um, any of the main British political parties, um, which is a sort of play on that. So it actually evolved into Comrade Corbyn because, as so often in Jeremy Corbyn's story, which is what I say in the preface, um, Comrade Corbyn was trending on Twitter. That was the, uh, the, the, the title that was suggested by the booksellers and the publisher. And, and I, it wasn't that I was sort of pushed in that direction. I actually didn't see it as being, I didn't think anyone would object to it, and does it play to the right-wing perception? Not really, because, you know, it's playful, I think, it's sort of a joke, it's, um, it's you know, the Citizen Smith idea, the very unlikely coup, it's this very English character that he is of being this sort of quite unlikely socialist. Um, the slick exterior. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and the honesty in politics. I, I think that people do respond to honest politicians and I think that's exactly what happened this summer. I think that when they were presented with Andy Burnham who spent the whole time you know, trying to work out where he should be positioning himself, um, Flip Flopper was the nickname he got over the summer um, and people were completely switched off and there's something so authentic about Jeremy Corbyn that people really respond to and, and they do that with all sorts of people or not all sorts, actually very few people so someone like... Um, Jeremy Corbyn, who, particularly at the start of the contest, you know, you got the impression that he didn't care if he won or lost. And, and you feel like, even to this day, you think, well, he's, he's never going to say anything or do something that he doesn't believe in. And I think that people really are drawn to that. Um, and I think that's probably one of the things he's got going for him most electorally. And I think that... Um, Someone like Yvette Cooper, for example, was just so buttoned up and she was so frightened to say what she thought. And, and I actually thought that Yvette Cooper had a really good chance of winning the Labour leadership and didn't because she just came across as so inauthentic. Um, the opposite of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, the left-right thing. Gosh, I'm, this is why I'm sort of right about politics rather than taking part in politics because I, I just don't know. I mean, I... I um, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to sort of take the fifth on that and uh, say uh, I'm fascinated to find out. I mean, we're told, we're told, as I said before, Corbyn suggests that it can be done. Um, most people in the um, sort of involved in the professional, politi- the poli- professional politicians involved in the Labour Party would say the opposite. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Why do your friends say that Corbyn hates Britain? I guess it's because. Um, because he's so unusual and, and people haven't been used to someone who's um, reluctant to sing the national anthem or who thinks that um, the royal family should be moved into somewhere more modest or um, <laughs> uh, isn't gung-ho in the way that politicians usually are about 
being British. Does that mean he hates Britain? No, of course it doesn't. And I'm sure we can be much more sophisticated than that. So, no, tell your friends that it's rubbish. I'm sure he doesn't hate Britain. <laughs> OK, let me, let me turn to the extreme right. And, um, <laughs> there's a few... There's my, my extreme right. Um, I'll take the, the first three hands and then I'll move up and move back this way. So the gentleman who has his hand up, I have seen you, um, you will be asked in due course. So one, two, three. Thank you. Uh, John Newham, I wonder whether it's possible to consider whether Jeremy Corbyn, having won an overwhelming victory, has, uh, will be able to win over the support of a greater number of his parliamentary colleagues, not to mention the electorate as a whole, because I suspect that unless there's clear evidence that he can do so, that the Labour Party might just contemplate what could be described as an Ian Duncan Smith moment. IDS. Um, Yes, sir, Uh, please. And David Makinson. Could you say something about the driving ideas, if any, underlying his stance on specific issues? Okay. Let's, let's have at least one other woman, please, behind him. Thank you. My name's Fiona. Um, I was at an event at The Guardian a week or two after his election to leadership and the Guardian journalists were saying that um, immediately after he was elected it was absolutely chaos in the press gallery because he didn't have a team to brief the journalists and it created this real sort of news vacuum when it was already a hostile press. And I think what a lot of us like about Jeremy is the fact he's very unspun, but there are moments kind of at the moment when you kind of wish he had an Alistair Campbell because he's getting eaten alive um, by a very hostile press. How would you describe the situation now as a journalist who works at Westminster and his relationship with the media? Okay, thank you. We'll take those and then I'll, then I'll bring the rest on that side. Okay. Um, will he win over colleagues and the electorate? I think he isn't, he's not winning over colleagues so much as sort of battering them down. Um, I think Syria shows that he's prepared to have a punch-up with them. Um, I remember last summer when I had lunch with a a new MP who was sort of on the right of the party, and he said, if Jeremy Corbyn wins, I'll be the first to march my way down to the PLP and challenge him. And that's just not actually happening, because they're just faced with this inescapable logic of the fact that he won, and he won overwhelmingly. I mean, if you get that kind of a mandate then it's just sort of two fingers up to the PLP. So I don't think he will win over his colleagues, but I certainly think he's done a good job so far of kind of suppressing them. And I don't actually think there will be a mutiny because I don't think they can. I mean, I think if if they try to do it, he will just put his name forward and and win again. And therefore they don't want to be... And each individual Labour MP doesn't want to be the person that triggers that because they will get so much, you know, abuse back so I, I think he's there for the, for the long run. Will he win over the electorate? Um, it sort of goes to the last question about um, is he unspun and, and, and some of the other questions. I, I think that he's almost, last summer he sort of managed to have a bit of a national treasure status didn't he? I mean everyone liked his vest and they liked his um, that he's got a cat called Harold Wilson and <laughs> no, he, he, I think he can sort of trans, in lots of ways he is more appealing than the people around him and he does have that capacity to, to transcend um, the party and you know, I think it's perfectly possible he could win over the electorate on a personal level and I think that 
the one thing I've learned writing this book is that you just you know expect the unexpected with politics. So I think that who knows what's going to happen with the Conservative Party. So at the moment it might seem as if they're riding high, but if David Cameron steps down and you get someone like George Osborne who's perhaps not got his deft touch, um, if the economy tanks, you know, if there are in in Chris Mullins' book um, a very um, unlikely coup. I think the scenario was that there were riots on the streets, so the Labour Party got elected. So I certainly don't think it's impossible. I mean, at the moment, it doesn't look all that likely, but I I wouldn't rule it out. Um, Some of the underlying ideas. Um, So Jeremy Corbyn was a councillor in Hornsey before he became an MP for quite a long time. And I say in the book that there he really threw himself into the task of opposing the Thatcher government. And that made me think at the time of writing it, and I still think then, that he's got this sort of unlikely um, thing in common with Margaret Thatcher, which is that his ideas are are very coherent. Um, He has a set of philosophy, a a philosophy that's sort of a set of principles that he sticks to and he's always stuck to. And they are um, a belief in equality, a belief in internationalism, um, uh, a belief in um, unilateral disarmament and peace um, and dialogue, and and those sort of underpin everything he believes in. So if you ask um, anyone what Jeremy Corbyn's position would be on a certain issue, you kind of know it instinctively. It's not like Andy Burnham where they have to sort of focus group it for for days at a time. (laughs) I think we kind of know what Jeremy Corbyn thinks, and I think that, that, that those um, are things that he's had for going back to his, well, certainly to his 20s, maybe even before that, maybe to his teens, and, and he carries them through to this day. Um, the press. I'm really sorry, the introduction was slightly wrong. Maybe I should have corrected it earlier, because I'm, I'm no longer in the lobby. I left um, to write this book. So um, I do keep in touch with my friends in the lobby, and I was talking to someone today, actually, who says that it kind of is still chaotic and they don't really have much of a relationship and that the people around Corbyn, if not Corbyn himself, although I think probably Corbyn himself, are, are wary of, of all the press. And, you know, you can see why. If, if he gets the headlines he has, of course he's going to be a bit suspicious. But... It's sort of the flip side of the positive that we spoke about, which is the coherence of his principles. He doesn't compromise and he doesn't want to speak to people who have done him over. So whereas other politicians will, have, will take the knock and get the bad headline one week and then come back the next week and do a favourable story, he just wants to sit it out. So at the moment, um, apparently the briefings are all very strange. Nobody knows to, to call for help. And I... I Personally, I mean, I maybe because I'm a journalist, I would feel like this. I think that they should have a better dialogue, and it would it would do them well to to serve them well to do that. And it can kind of they can only improve the relationship, and, and why not? But yeah, it's still pretty broken down. Okay, we'll stick on that side for a bit more. So I've got three more. Uh, the gentleman with his hand up in the blue shirt, yes. The gentleman behind in the red jumper and yes. jacket and then the woman next yeah, so we'll take those three and then I'll move into the centre again thank you Okay. first thanks for a very nice interesting and honest talk um, but Good. my question mainly concerns the role of the media because my impression was that on the election of Corbyn the media practically exploded in a torrent of untreated sewage <laughs> and uh, has the media, ha, have the, ma- the media, which includes the BBC, 
discredited itself? Has it fired off too much ammunition so that its credibility and its role in shaping public opinion might now be diminished? Yeah. Um, the other thing is, uh, you mentioned before on the, the demonstrations, I think the mainstream media blanked a lot of demonstrations. That, 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 that things were hardly reported on the BBC. So I'm perhaps more critical of the BBC than I am of the, the Telegraph in some respects. Okay, thank you. And then one and two. John Strafford. Um, in bridging the gap between the parliamentary party and the membership, uh, do you think that Corbyn will acquiesce in the deselection of certain MPs uh, as the Boundaries Commission proposals are implemented, or do you think he will strengthen his power, uh, uh, strengthen the powers of the membership uh, so that he is in turn strengthened? Uh, and in all this scenario, how much control will the trade unions exercise as the paymasters of the Labour Party? Thank you. And then the woman just next. Thanks. Rebecca Cooper. Um, you talked a bit about um, how some of the MPs who'd nominated uh, Corbyn felt regret at having done so and having bowed to the pressure on social media. Do you think that those regrets are likely to um, make them less likely to bow to social media pressure in future and therefore become further removed from the will of the kind of the electorate? Does that make sense? Yep. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, we'll do, we'll do this. Okay. Yeah. Um, the torrent of on. Treated sewage. Um, <laughs> treated sewage yeah, we don't want any kind of sewage. Um, yeah, I think um, Ed Miliband probably um, feels that he got a similar experience. I mean, it's, it's rough being a, a Labour leader. It's really rough being a left-wing Labour leader. Um, and I think that there is a problem, as we discussed, with the lack of engagement and, and that. Uh, yeah, having been there for 10 years... It, it, it really does, and maybe it shouldn't, but it really does help if you've got those relationships. And, and the stories are... I remember when Tessa Jowell got into all that trouble with her husband, and Tessa Jowell had been so sort of assiduous at courting the press for all those years that she stayed in her job, even though her husband you know, got into all sorts of shenanigans with, with Berlusconi. And, and I think that would be valuable for them. Now, is it, is it wrong? Of, co of course it is. You know, of course we should have a... a, a, a a fairer press, um, but maybe I'm not giving a satisfactory answer. I mean, Ed Miliband took the view that you know you, he hated it, but you can't complain about the weather. And to some extent, you you know you do have to work with what you've got. I would argue. Um, yeah, deselection. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. I, I talk a bit about deselection and, and in my book because obviously um, Jeremy Corbyn was very close to Tony Benn and um, the campaign for Labour democracy and that was something he was quite involved in in, in the 1980s and as you know um, it was something that happened for a few years Neil Kinnock shut it down because MPs sort of said they were living in fear of their grassroots members um, and there was some talk in the air that it might come back now. Um, for the time being that's we're told that that's not going to happen. But I should imagine that as time goes on and, and his grip intensifies on the party, that they may want to, may want to think about that, particularly if we continue to have flashpoints like the Syria vote. Um, I mean, it, it does... If you have a load of... I mean, hundreds of thousands of people joined the Labour Party this summer, um, and they want something in return, and, and, and they want to have um, a role at conference. So I, 
I think that may be well something that happens. I think that the membership will go, get something more. And yes, they may well want to have um, a greater role in who their elected representative is. I can't quite see, you know, the raw and raw deselection. I can't quite see people being sort of kicked out. But I think you're right. I think that the boundary changes might well be a sort of mechanism for doing it by the back door. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened at all. Um, the and the trade unions. Um, interesting. I mean, I, I, um, another thing I talk about in the book is how, you know, A, Andy Burnham messed up by saying, I'm not going to use, have any trade union money in my election. And they said, fine, then we're going to go <laughs> off and give the money to somebody else. So... Um, <laughs> I, I certainly think that the unions are um, emboldened and, the, and they want a voice and a role. There's a really, I mean, Trident's going to be fascinating, isn't it? Because obviously the unions have so many members who have an interest in maintaining Trident, and that's obviously something that Corbyn doesn't want to do. So we'll, I, I, I think we'll have to wait and see. I think that I think that will be the big test for for the unions. Um, social media, um, are they going to ignore? social media campaigns in future. That's really interesting. I, I wonder. I don't know is the answer. I mean, I think that's probably something that individual MPs will, will figure out for themselves, and maybe some will and some won't. I mean, I, I definitely think some of them feel a bit silly now. Um, so, I mean, social media generally is so new. As I say, what happened with during the summer couldn't have happened five years ago. And I think we're all learning how to deal with it and how much of a role. I mean, you, what you said was quite interesting because you said, oh, will they, will they be anti-democratic and not listen to them? I mean, is it democratic? And I don't know if I know the answer. It'd be interesting to hear what other people think. Is it democratic or anti-democratic that people who are very vocal on social media, who do sit up late at night tweeting people, have more of a voice than someone who perhaps is really busy taking their kids to school. You know, what, what, surely we've, democracy is when we vote in, an, in an, a real election, not in a Twitter election. So, I, 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 yeah, I don't know the answer, but I think it's really interesting and something that will be playing out kind of now. Great. More questions. The centre block. So a gentleman patiently waited there. One at the front here, and then the woman, um, whatever it is, five rows up. So one, two, three. Please. Hi, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, do you feel that Oxbridge, who seemed to uh, dominate the media and the army and uh, the PLP, the Labour Party, they seem to have a, a collective hate for what the people really have chosen here in, in the form of Jeremy Corbyn. What, think, what makes you think that uh, Oxbridge is so angry and aggressive uh, to this man? Thank you very much. Okay. Gentleman right at the front. And then if you could keep David your Spence. hand up. Um, there is a view that says the Labour Party's kind of over. It's now a political movement, not a party, because, in part because it's issuing maybe the electoral process. Um, and people that believe in that think with the rise of the SNP and the strengthening of the Greens and so on, that the Labour Party has anyway lost out in its intellectual heartlands. So I don't know the answer to that, but within that framework, if that is the hypothesis that's worth thinking about, how much would Jeremy Corbyn and the hundreds of thousands of people who've now come out, who in fact may have now come out, and there might not be any more of them, to blame? Okay, thank you. And then... 
could introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sophie. Um, I'm 17, so I can't actually vote, but I was able to vote in the Labour um, leader election, and also lots of my friends are very big Corbyn supporters. I just wondered what your kind of views were on how much of an influence these younger supporters are, and also in the membership, how that he achieved such a resounding victory. And do you think these numbers, kind of in the future of Corbyn, if they're going to turn up in sufficient numbers for him to potentially become Prime Minister, and if he's got enough of a backing to take it further than just being a leader? Thank you. Um, Oxbridge. I'm not Oxbridge, so I can speak freely. Um, But I think far too many people in our public life are. Um, I don't think this is a particularly a, a Corbyn phenomenon. I think that the establishment is quite angry at Jeremy Corbyn. So, um, and you have too many people from two universities involved in our establishment. Um, that's true of the Labour Party, it's true of our media, um, it's true of our civil service. Um, yeah, I, I'm w- with you. I think, like I said, I don't think it's specific to Corbyn, but I think that there is a, definitely a problem there. Um, Death of labour. It is a, you know, it is a hypothesis. So I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, um, but I, I, I certainly think we shouldn't. We can't be shy about saying that what happened this summer was was extraordinary and, and a big moment. Um, if that does happen, it will be quite, quite a strange phenomenon, won't it? Where the Labour Party attracted all these new people while metamorphizing into something that's not an electoral force anymore. So. Um, something has happened and I guess um, I'm now metamorphizing myself in, from a journalist into a social historian maybe, that, maybe, maybe it has happened I think we're, you know, wait, wait and see but I, don't, I, I think if, if your hypothesis is correct then yes this will be one of the, the, the it will be yeah Jeremy Corbyn and what happened this summer will be one of the major milestones on the road to that um, younger members yeah, I think I spoke earlier about how um, Young people have, of course, played a huge part in um, Jeremy Corbyn's road to being elected. Um, and I think, I think in, in lots of ways, one of the most important things about the role of young people in the Corbynistas is that they, they sort of inspired Jeremy himself, I think. And I think that, um, I say in the book, at the start of the contest, he was a bit of a reluctant candidate and he didn't really enjoy it and he thought, oh, no, what have I done? And then he began going to rallies and there would be people there excited and, and calling his name and, and to see a load of young people being caught up and engaged in politics like that would have been quite something, you know, can, can you imagine that? So it's almost um, a, a sort of emblematic thing to have had so many young people there. I think that, I think it's what drove him and it drove older people as well. It drove, um, it, it was part of the narrative of the summer that young people were there and they were exciting. Um, can he translate that into something more that goes back a bit to what we were talking about about um, is he going to give people powers I think those young people are going to want to do something with after they've had such a great summer and enjoyed it and went to meetings I, I wrote in the book about what it was like to be at his um, in his ham- campaign he had, he had something like 6,000 volunteers a lot of them were young and they would sit there and they would um, make phone calls and they would work very hard and then afterwards they would go to the pub and they would go for pizza and they would all have love affairs and things you know it was very exciting they're very involved in politics for that summer and he needs to channel that he needs to engage with those young people and turn that into something tangible and then from there move on and turn that into something that works on a broader level in the electorate I'm not quite sure that 
that is happening at the moment. But, I, yeah, of course I hope it does. OK, let me take some questions from the left. One, two... Hello, I'm uh, Meg Russell from UCL. Thank you so much for your talk, and I'm really looking forward to reading the book now. Um, But obviously there are things in the book you haven't been able to tell us about, and one thing that you haven't touched upon is the reaction after that YouGov poll of the people in the PLP who wished they'd never nominated him or who didn't nominate him. Um, I wonder whether you talk to any of them and you tell any of that inside story, because, because we were reading stories in the newspapers, for example, about whether the contest might be suspended... These kinds of things. I think there was a counterinsurgency of a kind, and I wonder if you could tell us anything about that and whether any of that's in the book. And secondly, what do those counterinsurgents do now, do you think? What's the strategy? In, in some respects, it feels like we're back in 1981. Could we even be looking at a Labour Party split? Okay. Gentleman just here in the black top and jacket and then at the back. Yeah. One watches Parliament and one sees Tom Watson sitting alongside him. But what does Tom Watson do? Because I know he's a very great (laughs) friend of his. Good question. All right. And then the gentleman waiting patiently in the back. Hello. Thanks very much for your talk. Um, I'm quite interested in what's described as the lack of an effective opposition. And I'm just wondering, uh, don't, not forgetting it is Her Majesty's opposition, but I'm just wondering um, if the Tories' uh, majority is cut, which seems quite likely, and the lack of what's called the lack of an effective opposition continues, what the hell's going to happen? <laughs> Thank you. Just get my crystal ball out. Details for I write, um, I write a lot about um, the, what the MPs who had buyer's remorse thought, and I write a lot about um, their, their sort of counterinsurgency. It's, it's perhaps one of my favourite bits of the book. Um, there's a whole chapter at the end called Last Stand, where Andy Burnham spends a lot of time sort of running around to the other candidates saying, don't you think you should stand down and, and support me? And writing letters to the Labour Party saying, it's illegal, what's happening? I should be winning. Um, yeah, it, it was a... Um, it was a... It was, but the behind-the-scenes story of um, last summer's Labour—if you're sort of geeky about the Labour Party and Labour politics—it's it's really good fun because they were sort of all over the place. Um, they've all got their explanations for why they nominated him when they shouldn't have done. Um, so I spoke to David Lammy, who well, he was running to be London Mayor, and he wanted to pick up all the left-wing Labour people. Uh, Sadiq Khan, I think, is pretty much the same. Uh, Margaret Beckett says it was her biggest mistake in all her political career. Um, I think John McTernan said that the people who did who nominated Jeremy Corbyn when they didn't want him to be leader were morons, and that was put to Margaret Beckett, and she said, "Yes, I am. I am a moron." Um, <laughs> um, and yes, uh, they, they uh, I'm sure you remember they they one of the wheezes that Andy Burnham tried was to say that there were infiltrators. So a lot of time and energy was spent um, by the Labour Party in weeding out these so-called infiltrators. Of course, it didn't make any difference in, at all because Corbyn won so overwhelmingly. And I, I had a really interesting um, interview with someone who was quite senior at the Labour Party, sort of in the, you know, in the um, headquarters, who was dealing with these letters coming in from Andy Cor- Burnham, who was saying... 
why didn't he just go out and try and win the election? <laughs> why, why didn't he try and get people to his rallies or to his Facebook site? Why was he sort of arguing about the rules? So, yeah, it was, it was um, a bit of an extraordinary time. And, I, yeah, I, I think you'll enjoy that part of the book then. What does Tom Watson do? Well, I don't know, poor old Tom Watson. Um, I think he very much wanted to be deputy leader and I think he's quite happy that he is. I'm sure he um, is a bit of a bridge between the leadership and the PLP now because he's quite a popular figure. And, um, yeah, I think I sort of wandered around being Tom Watson <laughs> most of the time. Um, Sufficient. Um, Effectiveness of opposition. Oh yes, and oh yes. About we were talking about that. You were talking about the um, Conservatives' majority. If they lose their majority, yeah. at, at any other time in since the war, if a part, if the Conservatives had a majority of twelve, they would be panicking because just natural attrition and people die. You know, people have horrible set scandals. And, you know, majorities are lost. Twelve is a is a tiny majority. The you know the Conservatives are, are dealing with Europe, which is their the issue that they always fall apart on and yet they're you know they're riding high they're they're doing fine I'm, I'm sure David Cameron can't believe his luck at the moment um is that Jeremy Corbyn's fault you know not necessarily um I think that the PLP they kind of know that they need to put up or shut up and they vacillate between thinking oh we can't do anything about this but we want to do something about this and 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 so th- there we are at the moment. Um, I, I, I don't know. if it, it doesn't seem to be coming to an end speedily. I think at some point they do need to pull themselves together and provide an effective opposition, because you're right, they're certainly not doing that now. OK, I think we need to draw this evening's um, session to a close. I'm going to thank you all for your questions and for your patience. Um, and before you all rush out the door, can I ask you to join with me in thanking Rosa for both her presentation?